Okay, good evening, everyone. Oops. Yep. Make sure this is good. Yep, this is good. Okay. Um, for the important, for the, hold on one second. Uh, for those who are listening on YouTube, I would recommend, um, if you're able to listen on Facebook, you'll get a better recording quality. Um, I have to fix that, and I know I should have done that, but so far I haven't. So um, the YouTube quality is not so good. It's getting an echo from the room because it's not uh, recording from this mic. It's just recording from the phone that's over there. And I uh, couldn't find my little connector because I usually don't use it. I do have one, so I just have to find it. So uh, meanwhile, the Facebook recording should be of much better quality. Thank you. Okay. Anybody want to sponsor tonight's class? You can do so retroactively. That would be a, a great schus. All right. Um, this week is Parsha's Chayasara. This is Parsha in my life. Um, things have changed in our lives in this last week. The Abishter is taking us to the final, th literally, to the last, um, last seconds before the Giyula, before the redemption, through, you know, mysterious ways. As long as we know we're going to the Giyula and we fasten our seatbelts and we keep our minds on the, on the Tachlis, on the ultimate purpose of it all, which is the coming of Mashiach, great godly revelation. We don't get intimidated, we don't get um, discombobulated because that's the natural state. We get fachisht, fatumult. Things turn, took an unexpected turn, and, um, but it does require a certain adapt, adapting, you know, just shifting in our seat. As Hashem is at the wheel, without a question, and, uh, but the, the way we deal with the situation as it comes is different. Um, so I'd like to see if we get some guidance in today's parsha. From the Hasidis we will study today about how do we manage ourselves in this sudden, sudden unexpected situation that we find ourselves in. Okay. So um, this week's parsha is parsha's chayesara. Every you know everything is in the Torah. So parsha's chayesara, and chayesara um, really begins with a. Let me just do one thing. With a summary of the light, the life of Sarah, it's like a eulogy for Sarah, and, um, and Sarah is, you know, our first mother. And the Torah begins with telling us about her years that she lived 127 years. And these are the years of the life of Sarah. And then it goes on to tell us about her, her, her how she, when she passed away and her burial, and and. Um, how Avram Avinu was looking for a place to bury her, and he acquired the land from Ephron. The question that we've discussed many years is, you know, the name of something always expresses the content of that which is named in, with that name. So why would uh, Parsha that talks exclusively about the aftermath of Sarah's life, of Sarah's life, be called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, she's not alive anymore. And we discussed it quite a few times. Um, based mainly on the theme that 
um, you can really tell a person's life because life really is eternal. Life is, life doesn't die. Life, life lasts forever. If it doesn't last forever, it's not life. Real life is connection to God. God is alive and God is eternal. So anything that's truly alive means it's attached to Hashem and has God's life flowing in it and therefore it lives on forever. But how do you see that something is living on forever, you can only tell that something is living forever if, I mean, at least in our days, when physical life does not go on forever, um, if after the soul left the body, the life of that individual is still impactful, it's still present. So, like it says by Yaakov Avinu that he doesn't, that he doesn't die, why doesn't he die? Because his children are alive. And his children are carrying his life because they're living completely different than everybody else. And their, their, their lives are um, directed and influenced and energized by the power of Yaakov. So Yaakov is alive. He continues to live in his progeny and his children and so on and so forth. In addition to other meanings to the word Yaakov doesn't die is that he himself, even in his body, is alive. But that's special by Yaakov more than even by other tzaddikim. But by every by every righteous person, by every person who lives life and righteous, I mean, you know, every person can be righteous in this level, that every person who lives a life that is uh, in fulfillment of their mission on earth, which means they're executing their godly mission, then they are attached to Hashem. And if you're attached to Hashem, you don't die. Your life continues on. That's why it says tzaddikim, the righteous, and even when they technically have passed on, uh, they're alive. So Sarah, we see her life continues even later. Um, particularly regarding Sarah, one of the differences that there is between Avram and Sarah is that, and, and it's related to the difference that there is in general between male and female, and their spiritual origins of man and woman. Man is rooted in a more transcendental level of the divine. Woman is rooted in a more imminent level of godliness. Uh, the, the imminence of God within the world. Women, women are rooted in Shekhinah. Shekhinah means Shochein, it dwells within the world. Or what we might sometimes refer to as Malchus. Malchus meaning uh, kingship, which is the energy of God most directly connected and involved and invested in creation. And it is for that reason that women are more grounded than men are. And uh, one of the powers of a woman is to translate the energies of her husband, the energies of, obviously, their appear, husband and wife, um, to translate the energies of her husband into the world, to anchor it down, to make it, to make it impactful in time and space. Uh, a man without a woman can float through life without any, without any uh, peg that will peg him into the earth. So he'll be here, he'll do what he does, and disappear. So the, the, the world is left un, 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 unaffected. Obviously, that depends also on a man himself and what he puts, puts his energies in and so on and so forth. But the woman has a special power to anchor the energy down because she's rooted in the anchoring godliness that anchors itself into creation. And that is the source of time and space. That's why we say regarding Avram and Sarah, the Zohar says that Avram is the soul, is metaphoric for the soul, and Sarah, Sarah is metaphoric for the body. Obviously, 
a holy soul and a holy body that come together for the ultimate mission. Being that Sarah is the implementation of, of Avram Avinu into the world, into time and space, therefore we see that where are we going to see the life of Sarah? If her objective in life is to take everything from the abstract and to translate it into the concrete, into the world, which means, which ultimately the woman then plays a much greater role than the man because the desiring creation is exactly that. That we should channel the energies and the lights and the revelations from above, the great divinity from above, and, 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 and settle it into the earth. And that's the meaning of God wanting to have a home in this world. That's why the woman is actually called in the mission of the home. She, she creates that home more than the man does, more than her husband. And Sarah being the first Jewish woman, so she's, she encapsulates the work of all Jewish women to make it all real down here. Um, now, to making it real down here means to make the world a holy place. And where do we find the world becoming a holy place for the first time? That's when, when I say the world, we mean physical earth becoming holy. That's in Eretz Yisrael. That's a holy land. You have land, real estate, earth, a parcel of of land uh, 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 and, and it becoming a holy land. What, what does holiness have to do with land? But if land becomes holy, no, that's the ultimate objective. That's what God wanted. So ultimately, the entire world becomes holy. Who is the first person who takes a piece of land and makes it holy? That's Sarah. I mean, rather, it was done on behalf of Sarah. And why was it done on behalf of Sarah? Because that's what she achieved throughout her life. She created holy space. It expressed itself at the time of her passing. Because during a person's life work, you sometimes don't get to see what they're achieving, what they're accomplishing, because they're in the middle of it. But when they come to the seum, when they come to the conclusion, so then you can see what, they, what, what, what was their life's mission, what did they do. Um, so since Sarah, Sarah Yemenu, our mother Sarah, her avoda, her work was to implement godliness onto earth, and therefore, when she passed away, the first piece of earth in the world to become holy was um, a piece of land for Sarah's burial known as Ma'aras HaMachpelah, the cave, the double cave, or the Machpelah cave, in Hebron. And actually, the word Hebron comes from the word that we spoke about it last year, about the spiritual significance of Hebron, attachment. It's where God and the world attach. It's similar to Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, but Hebron is the essence of chibor, of attachment, because the first place that became holy, where the land became holy, where earth became holy. Why? Because the Jewish people were going to take possession of the land of Israel at a later time, with Joshua, with Yeshua. What's the first land that actually took on holiness, became the Jewish land, was Avram Avinu purchased Eretz Yisrael, purchased a piece of land from the Chitim, from the Chittites, and he got that land from Ephron, and he paid a massive a fortune of money but that land became a holy land so this is amazing this expresses what Judaism is all about especially the role of the Jewish woman is to anchor God down into this world Sarah accomplishes it it's really interesting and that will also explain um, the passing of Sarah something I saw today something on the Rebbe which I, I, I it's a little footnote which was so rich it was so exciting to read this 
We know that um, on the Pasuk of Atama Sara, that Sara died. Um, over here in the next, uh, in the, uh, yeah, it says, Sara of So the Avram came to eulogize Sara and to cry and to, and to mourn for her. So Rashi says, that the passing of Sarah was um, juxtaposed next to the binding of Isaac, of Yitzchak, that the Akedas Yitzchak stated at the last story, right before the passing of Sarah, because when the news came to her of the Akedah, of the binding of Yitzchak, that her son was almost sacrificed. I'm sorry, that her son was being prepared to be slaughtered. And it was just, uh, he, 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 he almost was, was, was slaughtered. He almost was, uh, she couldn't handle that. Her soul left her, and she died. So um, obviously, the, this doesn't need much explanation for a, a mother who's waiting all her life for a child, and she's over here, on, she, had a, she had this baby when she's 90 years old, miraculously. Her whole life is for her, for her son Yitzchak. He's her everything, beyond her everything. And uh, suddenly, without any warning, this child is being now slaughtered. <laughs> a one and only child, you know, such news can kill a person. Simply that's the story, it killed her when she heard that, she just couldn't bear it. Um, but then you wonder she's a very big tzaddikus and this was God's commandment and Abraham on the other hand is also waiting for the Yitzchak all his life and this is also his one and only son even though Abraham also had Yishmael but you see that God refers to him as Bincha as Yechitcha your one and only son because to Avram Avinu both his sons were his one and only son and it was true because one was his only one from Sarah, and the other one was his only one from Hagar. So, it, but he did, and especially Yitzchak is considered his one and only son. And yet Avram Avinu, not only is he doing the Akedah, and he's not dying from the, from, he, again, he doesn't know that he's not going to shech them. And not only he's going to be the one perpetrating it, but he's doing it with incredible joy. How does it fit that, 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 for, that here you have a couple, and obviously they should be pretty much, you know, uh, compatible with each other. The very act that is bringing Avram the greatest joy that he's fulfilling God's commandment is causing Sarah the, big, the deepest pain that she dies. I mean, you can start getting into the psychology of them between a father and a mother maybe and try to explain it that way and that he can... Or you can maybe argue that Avram is a bigger tzaddik than Sarah and he's able to, to, to rise beyond all human emotion. Maybe you can make these arguments. But the Rebbe takes it, sees it from a very interesting point. Everything has to do with your soul mission, and that's your identity. Since Aram Avinu is, a, is, is, is rooted in transcendental divinity, even his name represents that Avram, exalted father, exaltedness. So in Avram Avinu's world, a, 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 a connection to God is the deepest thing. The highest bonding and merging with God, love of God and the, a, 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 a um, deep connection to God, there's nothing greater than that. Dveikos. There's nothing greater than being dveikos in Hashem. And therefore for his son, even as a father, loving his son Yitzchak, the idea that Yitzchak would become an ola, a sacrifice for God, 
And Avraham Avinu understands the elevation of a sacrifice. It becomes, literally, his soul becomes integrated into God in the deepest intimacy, on the deepest level of merging. So for a father, for his greatest love of Yitzchak, that is okay. That is, that, that is actually, I mean, again, I'm not getting into human sacrifice. We don't do that. But the notion of, his, of that elevation at that, uh, by God's commandment of giving him permission to do that for Yitzchak is his greatest joy for Yitzchak and for himself as well. It's a moment of deepest that he can that he can that he can pick himself up so much beyond all human calculations and fulfill God's will and give God something so special that he's asking for. I mean, all these calculations, awesome. So I'm saying all this bring for a person like Avram Avinu, who's living, who's a trans, who's who's who appreciates the transcendence of God from the world, he appreciates the infinite and so on and so forth is not so concerned with life on the physical earth. And therefore, he can be, this leads him to joy. Sarah, on the other hand, her life's mission is to anchor godliness down here into this world. To make a dira for Hashem bitachtonim. In this world, for that you need, for that you need to be alive in a physical body. Notwithstanding how great to be a martyr, Notwithstanding all the all the all the awesomeness of the loftiness and the holiness and the great devakus you achieve with God, at that at that moment it still contradicts the 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 sublimation of the physical world in the sense that when you're gonna not gonna die and continue living, and therefore being having the opportunity to engage and interact with the physical world. Another mitzvah, another, another, another sublimation, another revelation of God down here on earth is infinitely more important than the greatest dveikos and ecstasy you can experience. So in Sarah's mind, Akedas Yitzchak is, 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 there's no place for it. Is not that Yitzchak is not married, doesn't have children yet. He didn't. He didn't set up a family. He didn't anchor his holiness down in this world. He didn't impact the world yet, or anywhere close to what he's still going to do. Don't bring me any sacrifices. So you see, it's a different world view. It's, um, but, but it matches Sarah, who's who's grounded. And again, her first accomplishment is after her passing. We acquire a land for her. What's the second story in Chaye Sarah? Yitzchak gets married and sets up a family. As holy as Yitzchak is, you know, he's one who goes out to pray in the field. So he's this person who's so removed from, from earthiness, from material, physical things. He can be a hermit. He can live in complete seclusion, fasting, and, 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 and literally, literally, you know, um, floating in the, in, the, in the sky above. No, 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 that's not, that, that's not what she's interested in. She's interested that Yitzchak lives a life, a material, physical life, gets married, falls in love with his wife, he loves her, brings her into the tent, sets up his home, and then he has children, and he will continue the furtherance of the Jewish people down here in this world to make a home for God down here. That's the feminine outlook. That's the woman's outlook. That's what's most important. So that is, um, 
you can see it in Chaye Sarah emphasizing this is all the life of Sarah. Now that is the ultimate tikkun. That is the ultimate achievement. Because that's what God created the world for. To bring him down into this world. And that's why the Zohar says in the beginning of the parsha, why the Torah speaks and summarizes Sarah's life with such detail more than it does by anybody else. We don't even find such emphasis on Avram Avinu. It's passing. We don't find it by all the other mothers, only by Sarah. That the Torah summarizes her life. And it was Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. Meyashana, a hundred years. Esrim Shana, twenty years. Vesheva Shana, and seven years. Shnechei Sarah, the life of Sarah. It says it each one individually. A hundred years, twenty years, seven years. And then again, the life of Sarah. The Zohar says, the Zohar says, because Sarah was the one who did and finalized the Tikkun. Which Tikkun? Chava came to the world. Eve, Sarah's grandmother, came to the world. And um, she was supposed to accomplish it. Again, as we said before, the woman is the one who's supposed to finalize and anchor the ultimate purpose of creation. Man is the enabler, he is the empower, he is the one who empowers her, but she's the one who actually has to give that final touch, creating the home for God down here in this world. But that's not gonna come without a fight and without a difficulty. So the Zohar says, is dafkis bechivya, I'm not saying exact <coughs> words, but something like this. She encountered the snake, attached, became attached to the snake, and he, uh, he thwarted her, her, her attempt. He dragged her down. So coming down and trying to make this world holy is not easy. The snake, she, she um, Chava, fell um, b- b- through the scheming of the snake, the seduction of the snake, and she sinned. And she messed up the world. Not only didn't she sublimate the world, she dragged the entire world down. So much farther and the world became contaminated, polluted, and very, very dark. So the Zohar continues, Noah came to the world. And Noah knew the objective, to make the world holy. And during his initial time, the world was so corrupt that it wasn't possible to make this world holy. So it looks like he didn't even attempt. But after he came out of the Teva and the world was cleansed, there was a mabel, there was a new world. So now Noah was going to make this tikkun and finalize the Tishchina in the world and get rid of the klipa that was brought into the world in the days of his great-great-grandmother, Eve Chava. So what did he do in order to assist him in this monumental task, which was very, very difficult? He took to alcohol. And it wasn't just drinking alcohol. He planted a vineyard. He was going to use wine and the spiritual powers of wine, which is a very, very lofty kind of service. It's called the service of Pnimius Bina, of the innermost of Bina. Bina is called wine of the deepest understanding, but in a more transcendental way. And that was going to enable him to be able to complete the task which Chava wanted to do but failed. And uh, didn't work out. The wine, instead of it, him using the wine to, be, to elevate himself and to transform the world and to complete that task, 
The wine dragged him down. He became intoxicated and drunk. And uh, whatever happened, his son came and uh, messed with his father and did whatever he did and again corrupted the world. And then it brought the curse and so on and so forth. So things were left in a damaged state. Finally, Sarah comes to the world. This is the third, the third trial, the thir third attempt. Sarah comes to the world and she too is confronted with the snake. Why? Because she's taken and abducted by Pharaoh. Paro takes her to his palace. When she's taken to Paro, there there is, the Paro is representing the snake. And uh, obviously he wants to contaminate her and via her, she's the Shekhinah and all that, same like Chava, she, she wants to contaminate and access the energy of the world and corrupt the world. Corrupt humanity or further the, de the denigration. But she prevailed. Not only did Pharaoh, Paro, not have any power over her, but she actually extracted the sparks of holiness from Paro. And she did whatever tikkun she needed to do. And she was the trailblazer for her children later, for the Jewish people, that they were going to descend into, into Egypt, where most of the deposit of sparks of holiness were. And that Egypt had no power over the Jewish people to spiritually um, destroy them. Quite on the contrary, the Jewish people overcame the, the, the impurities, the, 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 the contamination, the tumah of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. And they extract, they did the extraction they needed to extract, and they went on to Sinai, and they received the Torah, and the rest is history. They brought the world almost to its complete tikkun. We're not there yet. It's still three, of almost, uh, you know, it's 3,333 years later, but we're kind of getting it. We're there already, Baruch Hashem. But this is the, but where did it all, who gave the power, who turned it all around? It was Sarah. When she came out of power, as the Pasuk says, Vayal Avram and Mitzrayim, that Abraham, Avram Avinu, came up from Egypt. And how did he come up? Loaded with, with gold and silver and great wealth, which we know this, doesn't, this means physical wealth, but primarily it means spiritual wealth. So he lifted all the sparks of holiness. So because of that, out therefore the, the Zohar says, her life is life. She lived. She accomplished with life what, the, what, what, what life was supposed to be from the beginning with, with Chava. And the Zohar says, zoch, zoch, zocha, she, she merited l'chayin ilon into supernal life. And that's why by her it says, and then it concludes again, the lives of Sarah, because she truly lived. So this um, perfectly um, supports what we were saying before. Sarah is the one who achieved the sublimation of earth. That's the power struggle between the klipa and the holy. What is earth? Physical earth, is it going to be a godly place or an unholy place? It's the power struggle. When Mashiach will come, all of earth will be holy. Sarah managed to go into earth, into the darkness, avoid the klipa, avoid the temptation, avoid the seduction, avoid all that, the darkest of the dark, and quite to the contrary, in the darkest of places, uncover the godly potential that's there. 
And again, as it manifested in her life, at the conclusion of her life, the first piece of earth to become holy is Sarah's, Sarah, and eventually from that land, the entire world will become the land of Israel. That means everything will be holy. But she made the breakthrough, Sarah. So she did the tikkun on Chav. Now, um, going into this Pasuk, where it says it was the life of Sarah, 100 years, 20 years, 7 years, and then it summarizes the life of Sarah, Shnei Sarah. The question is asked, why do we have a, a um, why do we have it, it's stated both specifically and then it's stated, it's stated in, in general. First, it's, it takes her years and it divides it into different groupings. 100 years, 20 years, and seven years. That means the different periods of her life are divided into different, different groups. But then it says a one general phrase, Shnei Chayesar, the life of Sar, which includes all the 127 years. Obviously, everything in Torah is very meaningful and has infinite meaning. So we need to understand the depiction of Sarah's life in this manner is obviously saying something. So mystically, Kabbalistically, it is explained that Meyashana, um, 100 years, is referring to a certain perfection in Sarah's life in which she utilized to the fullest her, her life forces, her life talents, her powers of her soul. So Meyashana, the hundred years, is referring to the encompassing powers of her soul, her pleasure and her desire. We know in, in, in Kabbalistic um, Hasidus, we know, we learn this all the time, is that a person is made up of various different kochos, different powers, and um, there are koiches makifim, encompassing powers, and then there is a koiches pinimiyim, internal powers. The internal powers we're more familiar with are the powers of the eser kochas anefesh, the ten kochas anefesh that correspond to the ten divine spherot and attributes. So there is the moichen, the intelligence, and then there is the emotions, the midots, the emotions. And these are the internal powers of the person. And above that are the makif powers, which we generally refer to as keser, the crown. But in keser, there's two levels. There's the closer keser, the closer encompassing power, which is the will power, ratzon. And then there is what drives will. It's more distant and more removed, which is the idea of pleasure. The pleasure of the nefesh, the, the tainuk, the delight of the soul. And that's called makif harachok, a more distant makif or what sometimes referred to as pinimiyasa keser, the inner element of keser, or corresponding to above the two levels of keser, one is called erech anpin, and the other one is called atik yom in the ancient of days. Because we are created in the image of God, so all these godly features exist within the human being. And when a person lives their life to the fullest, means that they activate all the God-given abilities and the godly powers that they have. Sarah, Sarah, served God, God Bishlemus, 
Her life was fully utilized on all levels. So it's, in addition, when, the, when it says over here, years, it's not referring just to physical years. It's talking about dimensions of her soul that she really lived them. She activated them. She fully used them for their, for their purpose. And that's the meaning. Meyarshana, 100 years, is referring to Keter, the crown. And over there we have triple digits. And it's referring to the, the two levels of crown is included in the Meyar Shana and the 100 years. Esrim Shana, 20 years, is only double digits. It's referring to already the internal powers of Chachma and Bina. Because the Mochen are primarily main two powers, Chachma and Bina. Das is already a combination of the both. Or a, or a combiner or, an, or a facilitator to unify the, the, the Mochen to the Mido, to the emotions. But... The primary two mochen are chachma and bina, and therefore they're called, chachma means understanding, I'm sorry, um, wisdom, and bina means understanding. So Sarah, Sarah was perfect in her chachma and her bina. She served God to the full capacity of her intelligence. And then when it says seven years, referring to the seven emotions. So you had a comprehensive service of Hashem on all levels of her soul. Then when it says Shnei Chaye Sarah, what does it mean when it repeats and it says Shnei Chaye Sarah? So the words, all the life of Sarah. So this has an amazing thing. It has a dual meaning. The 10 Sefirot, where our soul comes from, is our neshama is rooted in the 10 Sefirot and as we said before, even higher than the 10 Sefirot, into the makifim, the, 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 the encompassing energies that surround and encompass the 10 Sefirot, and which is from the world of Atsilos, which is a purely divine world, purely godly world, the world of emanation. But then we know that there is a more external level of existence, which is not Atsilos, not the purely godly state, but a creation reality. The creation reality is split into three worlds. Bria, the world of creation. Yetzira, the world of formation. And Asiya, the world of completion, which includes also the physical material world. Once we're um, um, dealing with the, the creation and formation and, and completion, there is already, that's already not in a perfect state of attachment. That's where the tikkun needs to be made. That's where we need to do some kind of a fixing. That's where we need, we need to make sure to attach. Atzilus is inevitably attached. That's why when a person is born, their soul doesn't have to be made holy. Their soul is holy. You have a holy soul. You have a godly soul. Because your soul comes from that, the world of Atzilus. But now you have to project your holiness into, your soul's holiness into your body and into your environment. So that means to come down into the three lower worlds, into Bria, Yetzirah, and finally in the world of Asiya, which we do through thought, speech, and action, corresponding to these three dimensions. And through holy thoughts, we influence the world of creativity, the world of creation. Through holy speech, we influence the world of Yetzirah. And through holy activities, actions, mitzvahs that we do, we influence the world of Asiya. So in our life, and the main struggle in life, the main power struggle of good and bad and all of that is taking place more in the external element of Bria, Yetzir, and Asiya. That's where the Klippa exists. That's where the unholy exists. And that's where this ferocious battle takes place. So when it says, after it says, Vahichayesara, Meyershana, the Esrim Shana, the Sheva Shanim, 127 years, and it concludes, Shnei Chayesara, the life of Sarah, 
the Shnei Chaye Sarah is referring to Sarah's life, not her internal existence, her soul existence, her spiritual existence, her higher uh, Atzilus state. Shnei Chaye Sarah means as that life um, descended and permeated all, all, all dimensions of creation, including the physical material world. So according to that explanation, the Shnei Chaye Sarah is lower than its first enumeration. In other words, in the verse, we're going from up-down. First, it's mentioning 100 years, 20 years, 7 years, referring to the internal faculties of the soul, the internal powers that are purely divine. Shnei Chayesara is more already projection outward into the body, into the physical existence, how this impacted time and space, everyday living. That's Shnei Chayesara. That's one explanation. But then there is another explanation. And this is very important, and this is going to lead us to the uniqueness of what our service, I believe, is right now, in this time that we're in right now. But you have to bear with me, obviously, if we have to lay out a couple of more ideas, because before we can bring it all together. The Shnei Chayasara, this generality where it says the life of Sarah, which it gives a certain equality over all her years, according to the second explanation, which as we're seeing in the scene we're going to see soon, is that this general power of the life of Sarah, which is infinitely higher than everything mentioned earlier, is what we need to tap into in order to be able to influence uh, on the most external levels of existence and, and, de- and especially at the very, very last, last and final battle. Shnei Chayasara, according to this explanation, goes on the very, very soul itself that, that cannot be in any way um, divided and specified with specifications. Earlier we spoke about the soul as a complex entity, an entity with intelligence and emotions and drives and wants and will and pleasure. So these are all descriptive features or powers of the soul, one deeper than the other, one more essential than the other, but they're still all powers of the soul. But then there is the very identity, the very, very quintessence of beingness itself which transcends all the, all, the, all the different experiences and powers of existence. So this is non-descriptive. And on that level, all the powers of the soul that will later emanate are all equal. It's all just a point of life, a point of true life. And life in this sense means pure divinity, pure indescriptive power of God, which is really the power of the soul. And later it would manifest in all the elements. And that's the meaning when it says Shnei Chaye Sarah, it's the root essence of being. Now how can it be, as we said earlier, that Shnei Chaye Sarah, on the one hand it means the most external elements of life, projecting life into the temporal elements of everyday living, the, the particular thought, the particular the, the, where life gets sliced into tiny little slivers. That was the first explanation I told you in Shnei Chayasara. Not the deeper world of rich, rich emotions, 
deep ideas, but the little minutia, the little tiny little sections of everyday interactions with people, with objects, with that that's Shnei Sara. And now we're saying it means the the very quintessence of a person's soul that's even higher than any 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 type of description or any type of feature. And the answer is, as you say, this is one is connected to the other. In order to be successful, when you get down into the you get into the trenches of everyday living, when you get into the more difficult elements of life, where there is a lot of klipa, where there's a lot of unholiness, where there's a lot of stuff that are out to get you, in order for a person to be able to sur- survive, and not only to survive, but actually triumph over the darkness, and actually uh, be able to gain and 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 claim and, and and be victorious, and by what? By transforming the darkness to light itself. One when 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 how does one accomplish that? Only by touching. By activating, or you say you don't activate this, but by tapping into rather, it's a better word, by uncovering, tapping into one's very very core being. And only from that very, very core being, when you anchor yourself, when you go deep, deep, deep into your core self, then one can accomplish and stay the course, no matter what, where, and when, no matter how strong the distractions are, or how difficult the, 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 the challenges are, we're, 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 we're rooted, we're, we're not, we're anchored. There's nothing, there's no wind in the world that can bend this, this individual. So Sarah was successful in in all the little tidbits of life, because because she was connected all her life to her very essence, never disconnected from her essence. And when you're rooted in essence, nothing can shake you. So, um, to understand that a little better, You know, Avram and Sarah are a couple. And Sarah's as we said in the beginning of the class, Sarah is primarily an implementer of, of Abraham into the world. So therefore, you'll see things by Avram and by Sarah that match each other, obviously. But Sarah is the translator downward. So we find by Avram Avinu that Hashem gave him a name change. In the beginning, Avram's name was Avram, which means exalted father. And then at a certain point, Hashem upgraded his name and he added him a hey. His name became Avraham. Hashem gave him a hey to his name. Once he got the hey, okay. Now what was the meaning of calling him Avraham? So the verse says in the end of Parshas Lech Lecha, two weeks ago, the verse says, because Avhamon Goyim Nesaticha, I made you a father of nations. Which means you're now being given the ability to convert, to make converts, to convert the world. Now, even though in Judaism we're not into converting people to becoming Jews, we accept people who want to be convert to Judaism pretty reluctantly. It's not easy. You have to really be a nudnik. <laughs> you have to really, really, really be determined. And only then can you make it. Can you make it through that uh, the barriers that are put before someone wants to convert? But even if we're not 
But that doesn't mean that we're not into conversion. We're not into conversion as the full meaning of a conversion for a non-Jew to become a Jew. But a Jew is over here, definitely here to convert the world. Convert the world from, from atheistic beliefs, from pagan culture to monotheistic beliefs. Convert the materials of the world to godliness. To, to convert the real estate of the world to become Eretz Yisrael. To, re, to, to, to convert the... Um, 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 cert, um, society to become a God-conscious society, to become a more caring, kind, gentle, giving, but and a holy society. So that's called conversion. When we do that, we and, and what's so great about conversion? The converting of the unholy of the world is because as a result of that, we liberate we liberate the sparks of holiness. These sparks of holiness as explained in the Kabbalah and Hasidut and Jewish mysticism, come from a very, 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 very high, high place, much higher than the source of the Jewish soul in the divine. So it's a very interesting. Um, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky situation. Going out and getting involved with the world is, on the one hand, a very big risk because you're dealing with powerful forces that are unholy that are ungodly. It's, of course, as we discussed so many times, it's, we would say it's much safer for a person to stay indoors. It would be much safer for a person to be enclosed in a fortress of holiness, stick their nose in the books and never take it out, and not be aware of what's going on. And that's good. That's a lofty, holy life. But one is then, on, on that, on, such a Jew is foregoing on the greatest treasures. Then there is the other task, and, and primarily the main reason why God did not keep us in the land of Israel and scattered us amongst all the nations so we should go treasure hunting. We should go find and excavate all the sparks of holiness because these sparks of holiness come from the lofty place, what we call the world of tohu, the world of chaos, which is much more intense and far, far godlier than the world of tikkun, where the Jewish soul comes from. That means that our flow of godliness is a much, is a, is a much weaker flow then the flow of godliness related to the sparks of holiness that are scattered in everything that's non-Jewish and non-holy in the world. And when we step out of our boundaries, expand, reach and interact with Gentiles, Gentile lands, Gentile ideas, secular ideas, languages, um, and the material, physical substances of the world and we somehow integrate them into the service of God and not only that rub off on, on, on people societies and so on and so forth to become more Jewish thinking more sensitive to God to holiness to whatever to morality and bring more morality and ethics to, to, to the world like the Jewish people have done and have really really made so much made the Truth is, the whole world very, very Jewish in, 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 in the core fundamental elements of thinking. So these, this influence, so this is the redemption of these sparks of holiness. So we're going down low, 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 low. And again, you're vulnerable because every time you're going down into the low, you're putting yourself in danger. God forbid we can be, we can be hurt. Um, we can be dragged down like we find many Jews assimilated during this long 
and treacherous exile. We've, what, we, what seems like we've lost so many Jews. Yet, the truth is we haven't lost anybody. No one is lost because everybody does tshuva, everybody repents, and everybody returns. And we return enriched. How do we know we will, we will return? Because Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. They came out untouched and unscathed. So too all the Jewish people, not even one Jew, as we the famous song, you know, beautiful song by Avram Fried, is, you know, no Jew will be left behind. Every Jew is coming back. And when we come back, not only have we not been injured, or if we have been injured, our injuries are healed, but much deeper than that, we come back with the great wealth of Egypt, with these treasures that are now enriching our Jewish experience, enriching our Jewish souls with such intense godliness, with such intense um, 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 lights that are way beyond that which was allocated initially for our soul in accordance to our soul capacity. So we've just now expanded, expanded, expanded. The entire realms of holiness have become expanded by the integration of the unholy into the holy. And we see that in, that too is hinted to in Avram's name. Initially his name, as we said earlier, is Avram. And then when Hashem says Avraham means you will become a father of nations, Hashem added to him the letter He. The letter He is the addition that we get by through the converts. And as I said earlier, converts means a literal convert or all the, all the, all the sparks of holiness that are all the converts that are being converted. They're, they're Hamon Goyim. That's the multitudes of nations. Everything. The, the, the American... Um, the American contribution to Judaism, as that is assimilated into Jewish life. So much of American culture becomes part of Jewish culture and enhances Torah and enhances mitzvahs. And all of that becomes part of that hay. That's called Hamon Goyim. It becomes part of that hay that is added to Avram. And hay is a letter of God's name. It's an incredible greatness an expansion to Avram, to the Jewish experience that comes from the non-Jewish world. But it also works the other way around. In order for us to be able to go down low and to enter into this, into the, into this danger zone, in order for us to be able to confront or to, to deal with powerful forces that want to drag a person down, crush a, a person's neshama, we need a very strong, we need to be connected very, very high. It's like the famous story from Rabbi Hillel of Parich. No, I'm sorry, not Rabbi Hillel of Parich. The story is from Rameyer of Premishlan. The great and saintly tzaddik Rameyer of Premishlan, one of the great Hasidic masters, used to go to the mikveh every day. And the mikvah was on a hill. And um, in order to get to the mikvah, so in the winter the hill would become, or it was over a hill. In order to go to the mikvah, there, there was a long way to go. It was all the way around the mountain. like the, But he went short. He went up the hill and he would go down the hill on the other side. But in the winter it would freeze up. 
So everybody would go the long way, but he would go the short way. He would go up and down. It was just too treacherous. It was, it was icy and it was dangerous. He couldn't do it. So the people were talking about the miracle because he would go like nothing. So one day there were um, people that were uh, what's called misnagdim, people that were um, not found of the Hasidic way of life and pretty much against it and sometimes even antagonizing against the Hasidim. And they were told that the Rebbe does a miracle. And they, and they, they thought it wasn't, you know, a miracle. Anybody, if the Rebbe does it, he was an old man, anybody can do it. So they decided to run up the mountain. They did it, they fell down, they broke their, they broke many bones. It wasn't a pretty scene. They really got hurt. And then afterwards, they learned their lesson. So, and they watched him go up, and he was okay. So they came to ask for forgiveness. But then they asked Rebbe, how do you do it? How, how is it physically possible? It's just impossible. So the Rebbe said to them, He said, to translate that in English, he said, if you're tied above, you don't fall below. He to always referred to himself in third person. Meyerl is attached above. He doesn't fall below. So a person needs a very, very special and, 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 and powerful um, empowerment in order that you shouldn't fall down below when you're going to, into a dark place. But, but the, and that you have to be tied. And the lower you're going, the higher you got to be tied with a stronger knot. So the hay of Avraham is not only a reward for his work, for excavating sparks of holiness, like we said before, the wealth that he took out from Mitzrayim, but also an empowerment to help him in his work. What's so special about the letter Hay? So the letter Hay, the, Z- the Zohar says, is a letter, the lace bay mishasha. It's a letter that has the le- doesn't have a substance. It means all letters have more substance than the Hay. What does that mean? So Hasidus explains this passage of Zohar to mean as follows. From all the letters that there are, there are different groups of letters. There are letters that are verbalized by the lips, letters that are um, um, verbalized by primarily through the tongue, through the teeth, through the palate, five organs of speech. And then there are the letters, the guttural letters. So if you would measure the breath, now letters are all made up of breath, and the sounds come out differently depending on how that breath bounces through your mouth. Um, that's what um, helps in the articulation of the letter. And Hasidus explains that the letters really are emerging already as letters before you, you, you cut them in the cookie cutter of your mouth. But because the letter, you want to say that letter, that's what creates the ear passage to work in a certain way to help facilitate that letter. But we're not going to get into that right now. So from all the letters, the letters that are guttural letters use the least breath, the less force, if you would have some kind of a device to measure how much breath is being exhaled. In each letter, you'll see that the letters uh, ches, ayin, hey, uh, which is the other one, uh, that maybe, that, that all these letters have the least, uh, aleph, ches, ayin, hey, I think, have the least, maybe one more, have the least breath to them. From those five letters, the one that has even the least of them all is the letter He. 
has the least breath at all. And why is that? So it's interesting. When the Zohar says that the letter Hey doesn't have Mishush, the Zohar is trying to say a certain a certain uh, weakness of the letter Hey, a certain um, a certain uh, limitation to the letter Hey, a certain. Uh, it's the weakest of all letters because it has the least substance. And the Zohar wants to say how God created the entire world only through the weakest of letters. He used the weakest of all letters to create the world. He used only the letter He. Showing how nothing the cosmos are to God, the universe is to God. He used the, from, not only did he create it through speech, but he created it through one letter. And which letter? The weakest of all letters. That's the simple meaning. But in Hasidus it explains that there is a quality to that. It means also the opposite. As we said, you know, things mean have, have paradoxical meaning. The reason the hay has the least substance is because it's the most spiritual of letters. It has the least connection to the material physical reality. So it's a letter that, re- that is the most sublime of all letters. All letters are closer to the material. And this letter is from so deep, from so high, it, has, it, has, it is beyond all, all, all substance, the letter A. So it's interesting. In order to be able to deal with substance, in order for Aram Avinu to be able to come down to Egypt, or to become a father of nations, in order for the Jewish people to be able to engage the earthy, the physical, the most distant, most remote aspects of creation, we need to tap into an energy that is the least material. Again, the more infinite it is, the more removed it is from any description, from anything that can define it and confine it, the more empowering it is, and therefore the deeper that, 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 that ability, that, that, that power is. So to work with Amoin Goyim, you need the letter Hey, the Leis Mashasha that has no substance. Avraham gets that hey. And that translates, and obviously over to Sarah, who when Avram and Sarah go down to Mitzrayim, the fact that Avram wasn't harmed is not such a, is not such a big deal. Because as we said earlier, Avram represents the soul, represents more the energy level, and Sarah represents more the body and the vessel. Which one is more corruptible, the body, the vessel, the container? Because it has a more relationship to the world. So the fact that Avram remains aloof and he wasn't harmed when he went down to Mitzrayim, no, that's not such a big deal. Sarah going down, that's what the Zohar says. We hail Sarah. She went down and, and you see actually that Avram, Pharaoh doesn't take Avram into captivity. He does take Sarah. Sarah actually goes into captivity. But the fact that she goes into captivity and yet they have no power over her and she wins not only that, she empties the coffins of Paro, she em- the coffers of Paro. She, em- she empties the, the, the treasury of Paro. And she makes Avram Avinu rich from all of that. And this is empowering her children to take out the wealth of Egypt and not to be, not to be harmed by the, by, the, by, the, by, the, by the deep, deep, deep depravity of Egypt and the darkness of Egypt. That's the power of Avram's hay. Avram's hay empowers this, this idea. So going back to Shnei Chayi Sarah, it's the same idea as we said earlier. The level of soul 
that is not divisible with any divisions of meyashana, esrim shana, sheva shanim, of the powers of, of pleasure, willpower. In other words, this very, very deepest level of neshama, dafka, that gives us the ability, shnei chayasara, to work with the most external elements of existence. With a, with a little, where life gets splintered into the, the bombardment of, 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 of tiny little distracting uh, elements, confrontations that we have, unexpected things that we bump into continuously that, that try to, to continuously distract us, throw us off, uh, um, uh, seduce us into this and into that, catch our attention with a million different things. The anchoring is in the deepest, deepest, deepest place of Shnei where all the powers are all singular because it's just one undefinable point of neshama. Now, let me just take that one step further to explain the chidush, the novelty of, of, of how, how what an amazing, what a, what a, what a uh, chidush it is that we can go out into the place where there is already a disconnect and an opposition to holiness and a ferocious opposition to holiness and over there do a, do, do, do a, do, do, do a, 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 a connection, a, a correction and a transformation. And as we said before, the greatest, the greatest um, enhancer, the greatest contributor to holiness and enrichment to holiness comes dafka from the fixing of the most external elements. We will see that in the way life, um, life manifests in the human experience. So, um, We spoke earlier about the essence of the soul and the powers of the soul. And we spoke about soul and body. But let's, let's work our way from the inside out. So we have, as we spoke earlier, the soul itself. Indivisible, indescribable. Then we spoke that there's ten powers of the soul. But in the ten powers of the soul itself, which, again, which the human being down here is a... Is a, is a um, is a mirror and a reflection of the divine above. So these, these levels exist. When we say the essence of the soul, that's, is it, that's a derived and related to the essence of God. And then when we mention our 10 attributes, because our 10 attributes are, are stem from the 10 attributes where God expresses his personality, so to speak, in 10 attributes. So whatever I'm going to be speaking in the human experience also exists on the cosmic. But let's first talk on the human. So we have the soul itself, and then we have the ten powers of the soul. But the ten powers of the soul and the transcendental eleventh, which is the keter, the crown, which as we spoke before, divides into two. Okay. But these powers of the neshama first also exist in two stages. First they exist all as what we call spheres hagnuzais, they all exist in a concealed state where you can't differentiate ten. They're all like one power because they're so unified with the soul itself that it's just, 
It's just that we say that from these energies will evolve ten powers. But at this stage, there's just pure soul. Um, and then there is eser spheres hagluyos. There's the ten spheres, the ten powers of the soul as they manifest outward. When they manifest outward, each one goes into its particular vessel. Like the intellect goes into the, you know, manifests in the brain, the emotions manifest in the heart, so on and so forth. So you see the way things work are from a state of non-divisibility, from non-descriptive, and then things go more into specification. Energies become more defined, and obviously the more defined they become, they become more limited, more constricted, and, and therefore more tangible. Okay? In the body itself, you also have life on two levels. You have the organs of the person, the organs of the body that are more general, general organs, which means they facilitate or they channel the, 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 the soul itself, the power of the greater powers of the soul. And then you have the individual organs, which are vessels and containers and conduits for individual particular functions and powers. So for instance, you have the brain and the heart. This is, you know, Grand Central Station. Here is where it's like where the nerve center in the brain that runs the entire apparatus of the entire body. It runs the entire operation, the entire, you know, the motherboard. It's all in the brain. And the heart too is a very, it pumps blood to the entire body. So it's a very general power. So it would be it's, it's a Kali vessel for what we spoke earlier, that the soul itself has all powers, but all powers unified as one. And then when the things come and differentiate, so that would be like the organs of the body, where the organs of the body, the facilitators of the individual entities. But notwithstanding all these levels that we spoke about till now, they make up the inner human being. They make up the human being, what is part of the person himself. But now we come to the next level of life where life exits the, the person himself and, and kind of becomes an attachment to life from the outside. And over here is already, it's, you know, it's very secondary and unimportant to the human, but it's still your life. And that is once the life, the energy of the soul passes and breaks through the flesh, breaks through the limb, breaks through the outer skin and manifests itself and flows in the here. See, once it starts coming out into the here, the hears of a person is very external. And at this point, you don't even, it's really not important really to a person whether, you know, you lost the here or you didn't lose it. If you lose a finger, God forbid, that's, you know, be very aware of it for months and years that you lost your finger, maybe your whole life, obviously. But it would be very much a part of who you are. You lost your hair when you took a shower. How many, how many hairs did you lose last time you took a shower? You have no idea. Right? I guess when you're young, you're not losing your hair when you're taking a shower, but you know. Um, but it's irrelevant. Because it's a hair, who cares? It's like, it's on the outside. It doesn't hurt if you cut your hair. I mean, if you yank the hair and pull it, it's going to hurt because you're pulling the, the, you know, the flesh. But just like this, you know, cutting hair definitely doesn't hurt. And even if a hair comes off, it doesn't hurt. Cutting the limb does hurt because your limbs is, it's still you. There is where life exits you. It's not you anymore. 
but people, you still, you know, you still like your hair, you still, you still identify with your hair, right? Especially for a woman, for sure, it's very much men too. But I'm saying it's very much of a, it's an extension of you, but not really you. But because it's not so much you, then the the life over there can support things that are really becoming things that are paras parasites, things that are, you don't want them, they're not an enhancer of your life. Your hair is an enhancer of your existence, unless it gets too long and bothersome. But um, there are other stuff that start, because already on that level of life, you're not so, 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 so particular, because it's not you literally, so there's already more of a level of tolerance for things that don't belong there. And that's the reason why a person, that's the idea that a person perspires, or your sweat. The sweating is already psoles, it's already, it's already um, not good stuff. Obviously it's good for the body to sweat, but it's, it's and, and that can already invite, oh, I mean, obviously we keep the proper hygiene, this won't happen, but if not, a person can get lice in their hair, which means you get visitors, unwanted visitors, people uh, or entities, parasites, uh, beings, creatures that make, that can annoy, that, that are, 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 an antith are antithetical to your comfort and to a person's well-being, but yet they can make their nest there. They can make themselves very comfortable. Why? God forbid, I mean, there is an illness, God, there is, you know, a person can be sick and get parasites in their body, but that's rare. The usual occurrence would be outside of the body. And the reason for that is because over there, it's, it's, there, there is more of a, an acceptance. Again, if, if you would ask a person if he wants lice, definitely not, but because it's taking place on the outside and on the here where there is not such a vigilance because it's not you, it doesn't feel like it's part of you, that's why they put it this way, they can get away with it. As opposed to, it's like, you know, you can have spider webs in your garage. Spiders and maybe a little ant nest. But you wouldn't have it in your bedroom. Because this is your inner light living space, which you feel very much as part of you. And this is, uh, you know, uh, the attic and a place that's external, so you're not, you're not so, so vigilant, you're not so caring. So just like it is in the, in the small human being, so it is also in the, in the cosmos. There is the entire um, evolving order of realms and realms and realms of divinity, of, of, of levels, of levels, of worlds, and so on. All they're all attached to God, as if it would all be just one big body, one continu continuum of the divine. But then God also emanate, so to speak, his, his hair. And the hair represents already the realm of what we call separate consciousness. Disconnect, it's already on the outside. Now, it itself is not bad. It's called, in, in, in Kabbalah, it's called klipas noga. It's the, it's the glowing shell. They're, they, they're not surrendered to God. They're not one with God, like a human body is one with the person. It's already an outsider. But because, but it's not an antithesis to your existence. It's just not completely one with you. But this leaves room for the really dark stuff. And the really dark stuff, that's the lice, the parasites, 
and that represents all the forces of evil. And what we call shalish klipas atmeyas, the three impure klipas. When we speak of doing the tikkun, of we're Sarah and we're the Jewish people and where we need to do the tikkun on, it's in the, it's in, it's in the klipa, it's in the, it's in the hair. It's in the hair, it's combing out the lice, separating it, and cleaning the world on the most external level, on the most outer, outer, outer level of existence. But in order to make a tikkun on this outer, outer level, one needs to be connected, as we spoke earlier, to the quintessence of life. It's not enough, you know, the levels of differentiation, the various different powers, this power or that power. Let's talk about it in a human experience, in service of Hashem. In service of Hashem, there is also, you know, in our, in our, in our psychological makeup, we also exist in this, on these levels. There is the inner world of, of, of the soul, the soul's feelings, emotions, experiences, inner experiences, is pure holiness, including also the world of totally, that's inward of, it's the inside of holiness, which is the operation of, 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 of living um, the Torah mitzvah elements of our life, the mitzvot that we're doing, the Torah study that we do, this is all the inner world where we're in perfect harmony and perfect attachment to God. The here represents when we step out of direct service of God and we're outside doing things that are not directly attached to Hashem. And that is all the mundane activity that we do. That's already being in the here. Literally, every time we're, 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 we're either doing business or shopping or eating or sleeping or exercising, which obviously it's quite a lot, we hang out in the here a lot. But that's the here dimension of life. Because it's already an outward state. And over there one can forget that the here needs to be attached. And if we're not attached, we don't feel it. Because what did we say earlier when you cut off a here? It doesn't hurt. It means when you're learning Torah, when you're doing, when you're middle of prayer and you have negative thoughts and you feel like you're being separated, it hurts you. You become very conscious of it. If you're learning Torah and suddenly, I mean, at least we should. While we're engaged in a mitzvah, while we're busy doing good, we're in the inner world of something we feel if we're becoming severed. We feel if we become disconnected. But when we're daydreaming, so to speak, when we get out, when we're already two, three hours, you know, in our business world, in our, and the fact that we're not in a godly state, the fact that we're not attached to true life, to godliness, is something that a lot of times is not even given a second thought, doesn't bother us. We're perfectly comfortable being in that state. Because at that moment, we're in this here state, in terms of the cosmic here, we're on the outside of holiness. But that, that state of detail, it's not doing anything against God, we're not doing anything that's not kosher, but we're not attached. The here calls for and allows for the lice to come. And the lice represents parasites. It represents when something that is totally anti-godly is invited into our life to eat away and to live off holy energy. And that causes an itch, so to speak, to God. Yeah, lice is very uncomfortable. He doesn't like it. So when we invite the lice in, it's not good. These parasites are very, 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 very bad. But here's the interesting thing. What did we say before? To extract the sparks of holiness in the lowest of things, that's when we need to go the highest. So here's an interesting thing. 
when a person, God forbid, does something they shouldn't be doing, and if they do it, especially if they do it intentionally, whatever, you know, it happens. We get tempted, we get, we see something, we want something, our Yitzhahara gets excited, and we get law, and we, and we, we choose to do something, that is, we make, we make what we call a poor choice. We did something bad. So what do we do? We give up? We fall into despair? God forbid. No. We know there's only one way out, and that is tshuva, that is repentance. When we do tshuva, what are we doing? We're actually taking the spark of holiness that's within this darkest of elements, because we know, again, the darker something is, the greater the spark of holiness. So now there is a potential that opens up for us. Because when we do tshuva, we can elevate, crack the klipa on the most external of level from this parasite and extract its soul and elevate it. But in order to do tshuva, where does tshuva come from? This is wrapping around all the way back to the beginning of the class. Where does tshuva come from? Tshuva comes from the very, very essence of your soul. When we're doing tshuva, we're not using our intelligence. We're not using our emotions. We're not tapping our sophisticated side. Tshuva doesn't come from sophistication. It doesn't come from calculations. It doesn't come from even willpower or, des- or pleasure, which are very deep ex- powers of the soul, encompassing powers of the soul. Tshuva comes from our very identity. In other words, we get shook into the core that we just severed ourselves from God and we can't bear it. And we cry out, that's tshuva. Tshuva is, is, is at the very, very core of your being. It's a shake-up from your very essence, crying, I can't bear this separation. That shake, that awakening at core, at very, 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 very essence, dafka, that awakening can deal with the darkest of the dark, can crack the, 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 the darkest of klippus and extract the spark that is the most removed from godliness and and consequently enrich the realms of holiness with an enrichment that all the tzaddikim who never sin can't do. That's why we know that the place where the Balchuva does accomplishes the tzaddik can't reach because only the Balchuva is able to extract from such a low and dark place. So with the same idea as we spoke earlier, the hay from Avraham allows us to go into Avhamon Goy. And part of the rectification of the nations is the God forbid, temporary sin of the Jewish people and the tshuva. That will explain also why so many Jews are born in situations where they're not observant. They're born and they're raised in a sinful, in, in sinful uh, uh, situations. The parents don't keep the laws of family purity and they're born with, with, in violation of all those mitzvahs. That's the three impure klipot. And uh, they're gotten used to from a very, very young uh, diet that's not kosher, and all other experience that's not kosher. And then these people um, get closer to Judaism, return, get a connection, or even if they just do one mitzvah. But when they did that one mitzvah, they do it with such excitement and such love. You might, you might not see it on the outside, but you have no idea what's going on in the heart of this person that you stopped to put on tefillin, and he gets a chance to do it. The sincerity of that mitzvah, the deep connection that happens at that moment, the redemption of a lifetime that takes place in that moment, the sparks and holiness that are then su- that were trapped for to, in the darkest of places that are now sucked up into holiness and they reverberate all the way, all the way up, 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 up to the vast lights of toe and bring in a brightest light of holiness that has never been before. Who knows? So that's the idea. 
as we spoke earlier, the darkest elements are fixed by the deepest of light. Now we come finally to the last and final idea of the Shir. The Lubavitcher Rebbe said that we've already finished the extraction of all sparks of holiness. We've done that already. In 1990, he said that. 1991. 1992. Very strongly. He knows. I don't know. I don't see these things. But he can see. We've separated the good from the evil. It's 30 years later. We've still been doing Torah and mitzvahs. We're still, obviously, we have to understand what the significance of it is. But obviously, we didn't yet turn on the lights. The Rebbe told us what it would take to turn on the lights. So now you've got to wonder, especially in the light of the events of what just happened in this past week, how is it that the powers of that which is not that holy, let's just say, keeps on strengthening itself, rising. We know that the Kalipa has no energy without sparks of holiness. If it's already emptied, if it's already, if it's already hollowed out, if it's lost already, if we extracted everything, where does the Kalipa get such power? Now it wants to dominate the world. And especially after a period of time which we've seen so much the opposite. We've seen such amazing triumph for holiness. Elements in the world that were working to assist and to help into Kedusha. And suddenly, boom! Suddenly it seems like the complete far end, the far, far other side, which Chas Shalom wants to resurrect you know, the deals with <laughs> the deals with the devil. That's what it is. The deals with the devil. They want to go right back to the table. They want to take us right back to the march on Jerusalem. To tear away, God forbid, the Temple Mount and do who knows what. This is scary. And where does it get such koach? Where does it get such strength if it's already emptied out? So which leads us to the last and final idea. When we speak about sparks of unholiness, sp I'm sorry, sparks of holy that is embedded in dark stuff, and that's when you are tempted by sinfulness and all kinds of dark, the non-kosher elements in the world, and we struggle with it. Generally, it's the, it's the element in life where we're the, the, the observance of the prohibitive commandments. That's when we confront primarily all the dark stuff which God says don't touch. Forbidden relationships, forbidden food, forbidden clothing, forbidden uh, speech, forbidden business. All the stuff that are forbidden. So when we have, we, in our lives, situations arise where we have the opportunity and perhaps even the temptation to do something that we shouldn't be doing. And we prevail over it. We crack the klippa, take it out. Or God forbid, as we mentioned earlier, we do fall and we did something wrong. But then we do tshuva because of it. So then we can also transform. Quite on the contrary, it's even a higher transformation. Never to be the first choice, God forbid. But if God forbid it happened, then we can always do tshuva. But then there is even something lower than that. So it says in Hasidus, and this is something very, very important, which I think is the secret of what's happening now. And that is, there is a lower level called a nisoyin. A nisoyin means a test. And a test means that there is a situation where we're confronted with something that flies against every... Now, there's different types of tests. Well, there's all kinds of tests. 
and, and this sometimes tests that a person goes through excruciatingly hardships in their life, and that's because God is testing them to see their devotion. God will test this person. God should protect everybody. And then there can be a temptation that can be a very big test, right? That can something like Yosef Atzadik had a test with the wife of Potiphar. And then there is tests where, you know, uh, like by the Akeda, God is asking for a sacrifice, and he's confusing you, right? Um, so there's all kinds of tests. But particularly the test that I'm talking about is when um, you're seeing things that are so don't make sense with our general understanding about what's going on. And suddenly, for example, I'll give you a classical example of such a test, was when Abraham was told by God that he should uh, go to the Akedas Yitzchak, to go take Yitzchak to the uh, altar, sacrifice his son. And on the way going, he suddenly encountered difficulties that made it impossible for him to go. He couldn't go. He came suddenly to a river, and he couldn't cross the river. The river was a very high water, and basically he would drown. And there was no boat, and there was no one to go get help from. So the only thing he can do is turn around and go back home. But God tells him to go. And he's there with his son, and he knows that the objective over here is that he has to put his son on the altar and offer him as a carbon. If they both go in the river, and the river will sweep them away, they'll both die. But there won't be no akedas yitzcha. So what's the point of going in the river? But he knows he clearly has a God, that God, that's the destination. God said, go over there, and he was told by God. So he has to dismiss this river. It doesn't make any sense. There is a river here. Now really, it wasn't a river. There was no river there. The whole river was a fabrication. Because Satan knew, because the Satan knew that Avram Avinu was now going to do the, 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 an action that's going to redeem the entire world and ultimately is going to defeat the Satan, it's going to destroy Satan, Completely, it's going to obliterate him. He was doing whatever he can, so he had to pull off even a fake, phony uh, facade of creating a river that's in the way of the of the, which. But look, Avram Avinu, he had no clue, knowing this is not a real river. But Avram, so what did Avram do? Is he going to start arguing with the river? What is he going to do? So Avram Avinu knew that if God told him to go, he has to go. What, where and when, he doesn't understand. But he's going. No matter what, he's going. Hashem will take care of the rest. And what happened? He went in till his neck. And he was crying out to God, help, I'm going for your sake. And guess what happened? The river disappeared. Because it was never a river. Which means that sometimes things are put in front of us that look like reality, but they're not real. They're fake. They're, they're, it's, like, it's fake news. It, 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 it has, it presents itself like it's real, like it's powerful, like it's strong, like it's something, like it's a bum, 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 and there's nothing to it. Its entire power is just to confuse us, just to throw us off, just to throw us for a spin. So how do you deal with that? Like Avram Avinu, you just stay the course. You don't give it any attention. You don't pay any attention to it. You don't, you know, consider it, argue with it, try to refute it. That's not that, that, that. If you know that right now, that, that this is what God wants of you, this is where you're marching, as much as it seems like this is completely thwarting, this is getting in the way, and this is not allowing it, doesn't exist. Another example, the Rebbe, there's a, there's a mimer from the Lubavitcher Rebbe called Nesatel Reyecha Nesle Snosis, where he talks about these types of tests. 
And he gives an example. The previous Chabad Rebbe was faced with communist Russia. And he says communism was this type of a, a reality. They don't have any real power, no existence, because it's just a lie. It's just pure lies and deception. There's nothing to it. It's not a real substance. Now, it's amazing. They reigned for 70 years, but they weren't real. You see, that's why you see in the end they collapsed as if they never existed. It was such a mysterious collapse because they never were real. When the previous Rebbe was arrested and taken into the dungeons of their, their torture uh, um, cellars, and with, with, with the most frightening of situations, he decided right then and there that he's not giving them even the slightest attention as if they have an existence. He's not validating their existence. To him, they don't exist. He's gonna, he demanded his tefillin, davening this. He behaved as if he's in his own house. In the sense that in his, everything that matters of Judaism, he just did it in complete, and didn't give them any respect whatsoever, any recognition whatsoever. They were nothing in his eyes. He called them nothing. He told them in their faces, you're just absolute nothing. He had no respect and no, he didn't give them any credence. And he busted them because it was something that was getting in the way of him spreading Judaism and it had no real existence and he destroyed it. It took 70 years until it completely manifested, but it, it wasn't a reality. It's a little bit of a hard one because it took 70 years for it to be destroyed. So two nights ago, Saturday night, Matzah Shabbos, Obviously, I was a little disturbed by the events last week. And I had Malava Malka with my son, me and my son. I, 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 I lit two candles. I was singing all the, I was singing some, you know, spe special songs from Matzah Shavis. We told story of the Baal Shem Tov. And then we had some music on and we started dancing. I said, L'chaim. I don't know if they <laughs> took a little tequila and I drank a little, just a little. It went right to my head. I don't know if it was the tequila. Sometimes you don't know if it's a spiritual experience or if it's just a little alcohol. I don't know what it was, but me and my son, for, you know, we did a dance and suddenly it was, I, I felt such an explosion of joy. It was like, whoa. I said, wow. I felt like, you know, it's Elio is here and David HaMelech and no one is stopping Mashiach from coming. No one is getting in the way. There's nothing over. It was like such a moment. It was so great. It was just. A, I, I haven't had such a exhilarating, elevated moment of a dance that was so in the kitchen. My, I don't know. My neighbors must have thought I'm crazy. My wife must have thought I'm off the off, off the wall. I was me and my son. We were dancing together. Okay. And right after that, I opened up the letters of the Rebbe. Because I needed a little, you know. <laughs> and the Rebbe's letter was such a powerful letter. I read it yesterday on a short video that I gave. When the Rebbe says that regarding, it's a Yiddish letter. It's from Rishchodesh El. I, I wanted to read it here. I couldn't find the volume. I have it a picture on the phone, but I'm using the phone for the recording, so I couldn't, uh, I, I, I took a picture of it. But the letter was something to the effect, I'm not quoting verbatim, but the something to the effect is that regarding all those other matters, you should know, he says, that they have no existence whatsoever. They have no reality whatsoever. Don't give them any, he says, and he says, the more you're going to strengthen your emun and your bitachem in Hashem, you're going to see that that's just going to collapse, it's going to fall, that there's nothing to it. That's what he says. And he says, and he quotes the Pasuk, we now just enter into the month of Chodesh Edel, where it says, Hashem, Hashem is my light, Hashem is your salvation. 
from who, who are we afraid? Which means that if you just strengthen your bitachon, your, 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 your uh, trust in Hashem, in a manner where you know that Hashem is the only boss of everything that happens in the world. He is the one and nothing else is in charge. No one is in charge. No one has any say. No one has any power. And it's only God Himself. And the Rebbe says, Emunah, in these words, he says, he says, Unkain dis, in Yiddish, Unkain discusius, pilpulim in his betim. means don't try to give any, any um, discussions, explanations, and 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 uh, and and spin it, you know. The, what's gonna? You don't know. You know one thing. God is now running the show. He's running the world. And by the more you'll have that bitachen is memi You have no one to be afraid of. Memi efchat. No, no, nothing to nothing to second guess. It's all good. So way I am seeing it and understanding it, even though the Rebbe says simple amuna, but even simple amuna, we're we, 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 we're supposed to integrate it into our mind, but yet leave it on a level that's beyond mind, and that is that the avoda right now is an avoda from the essence of our soul, and what is that? Now we know as we spoke. We have to be sh- we have to wake up from our essence. Wake up to what? Mashiach is coming. And we need to do whatever, in the, in the, what I mentioned earlier in the, in the discourse that I mentioned earlier, he talks about hazaza atzmis, a, 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 a essential shake-up. The Jewish people need to have now an essential shake-up in which we cry for Mashiach. We say, Abishter, send us Mashiach now. You promised us the Geula has to come, Mashiach must. We saw all these miracles happening. You, it cannot, God forbid, be stopped now. No way. We demand, we're asking, we're pleading, we're begging, and we're accepting upon ourselves the kingship of Mashiach Tzedkeinu. And therefore, there's no such a thing as a power in the world who's going to decide now to rule the world on an opposite of, 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 the, of, of, of Hashem's name, opposite of everything godly in this world, opposite to introduce everything unholy in the world, in a Mashiach the world, that cannot be. So the moment we stand fast and know that it has no power, but take a look at it, you see, it says one of the things about Amalek is Amalek has chutzpah. It's chutzpah. Chutzpah meaning it has just pure, it, it inflates itself. It knows it doesn't have any qualities. It knows it has, no, it knows it's a lie and yet it, I don't want to talk too much because I don't want to give it chayas, but you see a situation where the lies know they are lying and they know that we know that it is a lie. We know that the whole thing is a, is a, is a baba maisa. We know that there is deception and lies and 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 and, and absolute. It is such fluff. And the fluff, with all the machinery, with all the the the, the powerful the powerful mechanisms that are helping the fluff. It's still completely see through that the whole thing is one big piece of fluff without any substance. So you ever see those, uh, what were they, what were they, I remember in New York we used to play with them, they were like these, these, uh, they come off the plants, they're these white balls and they have, uh, they look like a ball, but you just, you go like this and pst, there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. It's patal mavutal. It has no power. It's a pee. It's, it's literally substanceless. As long as we don't, but, it, but it's intimidating. It's intimidating. 
It's going to be in the news. It's going to present itself. It's going to be preparing. It's going to be making a uh, 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 new, new world order with all kinds of things. It's, let me tell you, it's all Baba Mises or Baba Mises. Utsu eats of a sufar, and it has no existence. But in order for us to, 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 to reveal its nothingness, for that we need to dig in just, not to deal with it, but to deal with ourselves. To be certain with firm resolve that Mashiach is coming. Mashiach is here already. It's just a matter of us opening our eyes. And all this fakeness will disappear and the true leader of the world, which is no one else but Melech Mashiach, like Mashiach himself, will prevail and will reveal himself. And in the year like this of Shnasp Nefloes Arenu, we're going to see that revelation of Mashiach Tzadkenu. We're going to see it now, now, and Mamish now. It's going to be Vayichay Sarah. It's going to be the life of Sarah. Sarah is Malchus to Kedusha. The Malchus of holiness is going to be fully manifest for the whole world to see. May we merit to see that now.